0: So, it's just good. <clears throat> this morning, we are going to be in Joshua 8. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I was joking with someone before the service began, though, that I'm going to talk as much about Joshua chapter 7 today as I do about 8, uh, because the two are, are very closely linked. And uh, I, want to, I want to read, believe it or not, the whole text with you this morning like it's going to help us as we as we dive in. Um, And then uh, we will so we'll review quickly what we've seen so far in Joshua. Now starting back in chapter six. Now chapter six is uh, where Joshua and the Israelites they they come across Jericho. There's this big formidable fortress out in the uh, on the western edge of the promised land. Um, It's a big scary wall and then they have spies that go in. But uh, something amazing happens, right? The Lord does something incredible. He leads the people of Israel against this formidable foe in Jericho, and by no effort of their own, the walls of Jericho come, come falling down. I remember Matt preached it. He sang that awful song that got stuck in my head for days and days. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down, and, uh, and it was great. It was an amazing moment. I think, I think you feel it in the weight of the text, um, and, uh, and so what happens is, fresh off this victory from Jericho, uh, Joshua and Israel, they, um, they, uh, their zeal gets the better of them, right? And so they see there's this small little town of Ai just over the horizon. And, uh, hey, we just, we just beat Jericho. Like, we never thought we'd do that. What's this tiny little town over here? So we're just going to go, and we're just going to take it. And, man, it's going to be good. So we're just going to go ahead and knock out two birds, one stone. We'll just go get it. They don't even send that many troops, right? Joshua sends just a few thousand. It's not a, not a large area. What happens? They're defeated soundly. The Israelites, the troops that he sent, come running backwards. Thirty-six of them die. Joshua's heartbroken. Israel's heartbroken. They're, they have so many questions. What's going on? What's happening? Lord, I thought you were giving us this land. I thought the people were melting before us we realized there was, there was a problem. Because the Lord had commanded that when they took over Jericho, that everything in the city, the people, all the belongings, all the buildings, the whole city was to be devoted to destruction. It was all God's. They weren't going to keep any plunder, none of it. But someone disobeyed that. One person, Achan. Right? He... Saw the gold and the, and the garments and, and he thought to himself, man, I really want those. I know I shouldn't, but I really want them. He grabbed them, he took them, he hit them in his tent. So there's sin in the camp. And so when Joshua orders the attack on, on Ai, the first one, uh, the Lord is not with them. He's not going before them because his anger is burning against them. Because he gave them a very simple command, devote everything to destruction. And they did not obey. And they corporately pay a price for that. Not just Achan pays a price, the 36 soldiers that died fighting, and then the ones that were humiliated running backwards. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a rough moment. But, but there's, there's, there's restoration, right? So I was telling uh, Brother Glenn this morning that I, I hope that what the Lord gave me this morning is helpful for you. Because it, uh, it was helpful for me. And, and I say that helpful meaning I was, I was convicted as I studied this text the past couple of weeks. It hit me, hit me right in my chest. Uh, because um, what I think we see Joshua and others in our story this morning in chapter 8, um, it, it weighs heavy. It weighs heavy on me because I struggle with the same sins. And so I'll be tra- hopefully I'll be transparent with you this morning in a way that's helpful. Because a large part of the, the, um, the testimony of, of how I came to be right here is struggling through a sin just like Joshua's is struggling to uh, place the Lord as the sole arbiter of authority on my life. I don't know if anyone remembers this. I, I know I do, so this is actually an anniversary uh, for me. It's not like marriage anniversary. No, no kids were born. It's, it's nothing except that uh, one year ago on this exact same Sunday was the first time I ever led worship at Poplar Spring Baptist. And a year ago, uh, we had no idea that a year from then that I would be standing here preaching to you all as your pastor. And uh, that's incredible to me, and I'm not going to get emotional. So <laughs> thank you guys for uh, being our family. We're really excited, and we love being here, and we look forward to however many Lord- years the Lord will give us. But I say all that to introduce this topic of my, uh, of my struggle for the first Four, four and a half, five years. I may be generous there. Maybe we still struggle with it, but the first uh, several years of marriage, I struggled. Um, I, Sammy and I, we felt called to go overseas. We felt the very specific call in our lives that the Lord was sending us to the nations. That we we didn't know where, we didn't know what region of the world, we didn't know what, what language we needed to study, but we knew that the Lord wanted to send us to the nations. We, we felt that call very specifically, and so we very specifically pursued that. It led us to Louisville, where I, I began a seminary degree. Um, it led us to uh, being in process with the International Mission Board uh, a couple times. <laughs> um, and all along the way, as we reflect now, I see that um, I was struggling um, because what I had done is I had taken this idea, this calling, this this thing that the Lord wants his people to go to the nations, I had applied it to myself, and then I had been determined to find my own means of getting there regardless of obstacles or anyone telling me maybe not right now, uh, and, and so what I ended up doing was wrestling the reins away from the Lord and repeatedly um, across the years uh, trying to to, to weasel my family and I into a situation where we could go overseas. And we kept meeting obstacle after obstacle, whether it was financial or timing or children being born. Um, there, there was only, only obstacle after obstacle. We were, we were frustrated, very frustrated. But then I think it was, um, I don't remember the exact date. I remember the time of year. <laughs> it was, uh, it was um, Christmas about this time. And uh, I had spent several weeks in prayer, just very frustrated with God. And then he revealed to me through the wisdom of some fellow saints and believers um, what I'd been doing, that I was stealing God's authority from him and placing it on myself. And what that meant was that uh, I needed to—we had, had never put down roots— we had never invested where we were supposed to be, so, so perpetually looking to the horizon for the next thing and neglecting what was right in front of us, neglecting fellowship and, and friends and opportunities to serve and be devoted and just be where we were, to put down roots and to cling to what the Lord had given us now rather than looking forward to what we wanted to do next and put us in a very dangerous situation. And, and what we see... And what I see in in Joshua 7 and 8 is that exact same thing from Joshua. And his zeal to go and get I, he wrestles the reins away from God and he says, you know what, that's a good thing, just like missions is a good thing. But there's a way in which the Lord has a battle plan for us. He has a plan for us and a purpose for us that we need to know and we need to be a part of. And when we uh, are not a part of it, we experience that same frustration. We experience that same um, anger. It was anger for me. Um, not, not knowing, like, why, why, Lord, why won't you let us do this good thing? So, if you find yourself there this morning, experiencing that frustration, or maybe you have been there before, if you say you haven't, you probably will be, or maybe you're in the middle of it and don't know it yet, Um, I imagine we've all been there. We've all experienced that frustration of kind of of waging war against God's will in our life, um, whether we know it or not. But the good news is that there's restoration, that there's hope. And I think we see that in our text this morning. So I want to read this text to us um, in some some big chunks. um, And the the first one being in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. So after all that happened to Joshua they rooted out the sin of Achan, they killed it they crushed it in the form of killing and crushing Achan and his family they removed the sin from their midst and these are the next words of the Lord to Joshua. Chapter 8 verse 1 And the Lord said to Joshua Do not fear do not be dismayed. And that's comforting. So after all that They've been through after the defeat, after the humiliation, after finding out that one of their brothers in their midst has sinned against them and sinned against God. They, uh, they root out the sin, and they, the next words of the Lord are, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. The Lord is ready to make restoration. So if you find yourself there this morning in a place where you are warring against the Lord, and uh, that you are far from God, that you, are, um, that you feel as if there's a distance between you and him. I want you to know that there's restoration to be had, that there's not a, there's not a long road behind you. No matter, how, no matter how long you've been running from the Lord, no matter how far your back has been to him, there's no distance. Right? You don't have to walk your way back to him. He stands ready to forgive. And he says it just right here, do not fear. And do not be dismayed. These words that he says to Joshua that have been repeated through Deuteronomy and Joshua over and over again. The Lord says them to, to Moses, and, and, Mo- and, the Lord, and Moses says them to Joshua, and then the Lord says them to Moses and Joshua. And now the Lord is saying it to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed, because I stand ready to forgive. The Lord is gracious. So Joshua has the unique task. Of, uh, of, of wrestling with that <laughs> he has to come to terms with this forgiveness that he's, that he's receiving from the Lord um, but it's good right so he, he comes and, and, and the Lord says do not fear do not be dismayed there's hope for you and there's restoration the sin has been atoned for so uh, let me give you our outline really quickly this morning as we work through this um, the Lord redeeming what has happened at, at Ai that we saw last week where there was a defeat the Lord's going to redeem all that I think there's several points here um, that are helpful to us that that we need to know. So the first one is that um, like we just said that there's restoration. The Lord stands ready to restore you. And the second point that the Lord has a plan. He's ready with a plan. Then as we continue in the text we'll see that not only does the Lord stand ready with a plan but his plan is better than your plan and that not only is his plan better than your plan, but his plan is written in stone in eternity. And finally, that the plan that he has has been paid for by his blood. So we see that restoration stands ready for us. It stands ready for Joshua, that the Lord is ready to receive them back in. That there's no more penance that must be paid. That when the Lord says that sin is finished, that there is forgiveness, it's over. There's no lingering feelings of of fear or, or um, anger towards you. There's, there's, no, there's no lingering feelings of, of a grudge that the Lord holds. When he says it's done, it's done. So not only does the Lord stand ready to restore you, but he stands ready with a plan. So let's read 8, 1 and 2 together. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you. Arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, into your hand, the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And here's his plan. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. That's cool. So the Lord has a plan ready. And this is the thing that Joshua failed to realize, right? He, he, he failed to realize that, that, well, maybe the Lord has an opinion here. And Sammy and I have been wrestling with this lately as we talk about the Lord caring about the details, right? It's not just that the Lord wants him, wants Joshua and and the people of Israel to take Ai, right? We know he does. He said, I'm giving giving this land to you. Over and over again he said that. So it's true. When Joshua goes to take the city of Ai, he's not doing anything that we know the Lord ultimately doesn't want done. But what he fails to realize, and I think what we fail to realize... Is that the Lord cares about the details of that? He's not just goal oriented; He's about the process. As Sammy and I have been talking about uh, school for Silas, so Silas will be f- five in December, and, and we're talking about what to do. Uh, we've just been making plans, asking questions, talking about his preschool that he's going to now, and or when do we want to start. Do we want to homeschool. Do we want to do that? If we do homeschool, what curriculum do we? We have all these details that we're just sorting through in our minds. And Sammy realized it first because she's the better of us. And I realized it with her that we have not been bringing this to the Lord. And as we diagnose that, we realize it's because I fundamentally don't believe that the Lord cares about the details of my five year old's education. And how insulting is that to God? To a God who knows when a sparrow falls to the ground and knows the numbers of hairs on my head, how could He not care about the details? And how much more if he cares about the details of the numbers of hairs on my head and about my child's education or, or your child's health problem or your health problem or, or some detail about some, something going on at work, something going on in the family. It's an insult to him for the God who is there all the time and knows all things to think that at the same time he wouldn't care. And this is exactly what happens to Joshua. He thinks, oh, there's the next thing. There's the, the thing on the horizon. I'm just going to shoot for it. And that's what I, I struggle with myself, seeing the next thing on the horizon and thinking, oh, I can go do that. I don't really need the Lord. That's fundamentally what I'm saying is that I don't believe the Lord cares. And not only that, I don't believe that the Lord really needs to help me because I can see it. I will just walk right over there and do it. But that's an insult to who the Lord is and to his character. And it's an insult to the plan that he has had in place from the beginning of time. And so we see, as he says to, to Joshua, he says, lay an ambush against the city behind it. He has a very specific idea of how Joshua is to take the city of Ai. He has some details. So I want to I study those with you really quickly. This is a, this is a great plan for, for a couple reasons, and, and, and we're going to dive into it. So read with me, starting in verse 3, where it says, lay an ambush in, uh, against the city behind it. So Joshua, this is starting verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. Okay, so we got a secret night mission here, some commando units. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Okay, so they're going to go by night around the city of Ai, and they're going to go in behind it and just kind of like hide. Like maybe there's some rocks or like a deep spot or a high spot, somewhere where they can't be spotted. He says, Behold, you're going to lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but remain ready. You've got to find that sweet spot where you're close enough to attack, but not too far off, but you can still see it. He says, And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, when the people of Ai come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. Okay, all right. Now the Lord's talking. He's got, he's got something good cooking here. So we're going to flee just like we did before. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. So for, for they will say, and this is what the people of Ai are going to say, they are fleeing just from us, just as before. And Joshua says, so we will flee before them. And then you, this is the ambushing party, will rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. It's a crucial part. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. So we see where this plan is going, and it has much more detail and many more specifics than what Joshua anticipated in the beginning. And I hope we can apply that to our life, right? That we think, for some reason that because I can see the end objective that I know exactly how to get there and I know the Lord's purpose. That's presuming on the Lord's grace. It's presuming on his will and it's a front of his sovereignty. And, and so this is what Joshua was ignoring when he went and attacked Ai the first time. So he sends out this ambushing party and then the plan continues. So now we're getting into the part where it's narration. It's not so much the plan. So starting in verse 10. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard to the west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. So just help you guys picture what's going on here, we have Ai, that's the city, right? So Joshua by night has sent a huge number of troops, like 30,000 just way around to the south or to the north, whichever direction they went, and they're back here behind the city. And the king of Ai and the people don't know they're there. And then Joshua is going to come by day, with, with a main force of troops. And he's going to approach to the north so that he can be seen. So the people and the king of Ai see what's going on. Like, oh, they're coming to attack. And so they come for the night and they encamp kind of over here with a ravine between them and the city. And they're acting as a diversion so that they think that the main force is here with Joshua. And there's also a secondary force behind the city ready for ambush. Starting in verse 14. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people and the men of the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. So the plan is working. So the plan here is to draw the people of Ai out of their city into battle. And then just like Joshua said, as the battle ensues, what are we going to do? We're going we're to we're run away just like we did before. This is the beauty of it. They're using the overconfidence of the people of Ai against them to accomplish their goal. Now why would the people of Ai be overconfident? Well, because they already beat Israel once, right? They went, they sent some troops, they got their butts kicked, 36 of them died, and they had to run back. So the people of Ai are like, these Israelites, we were worried about nothing. We're not worried about them at all. And so when they come out to fight them, maybe, maybe there's like a little bit like some swords clanging kind of a deal, and then Israel's going to run off in the opposite direction and draw all the people of Ai out. And so this is actually what happens. Said so they they rushed out to meet Israel in battle. This is the middle of fourteen, but he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city, and Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Plans working like magic, not really like magic, just like the Lord planned. <laughs> So the people are coming out of the city, and then they get emboldened because they see Israel being, air quotes, defeated. Air quotes is for the people that are listening. They can't see what I'm doing. They're defeated, and they run away. And so all the people go, hey, we're going to end this once and for all. We're going to go get these guys. And so everyone empties out of the city. And what does that create an opportunity for? The end of 16... It says, so, um, and they pursued Joshua. They were drawn away from the city. Verse 17, not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So both of these nearby cities empty. And they left the city open and they pursued Israel. The Lord's plan was good. It is working. Let's continue in 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out your javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua, you imagine he's, he's kind of up on his signaling spot. like Maybe he's not down in the fighting, but he's kind of up on a hill like monitoring things and sending signals. So he lifts his hand up, and the guys that are behind the city, they have their lookout, so he's, they see the javelin in his hand, and they know it's time to go. So when Joshua stretched out his javelin in the hand toward the city, and the men in ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. Then verse twenty. So so when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness, so they were going the the Israelites who were going towards the wilderness, what did they do? Once they see that once they see the city burning, okay, time to go fight again. So Ai is right in the middle, not only of Israel who has turned and is now pushing back against them, but the ambushing party who has set the city on fire. Is coming towards them too. And they catch them in this anvil and they crush them. And the battle is over before we, even, we don't even have much narration left. It says, so when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that. Verse 21. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai and the others came out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive, and they brought him near to Joshua. And then verses 24 through, through 29 we're going to look at more closely in a second, but basically they finished killing all the people as the Lord had commanded. They, devote all the, they, they capture all the goods, and they, uh, they have the king, and they execute him. This is a really good plan. It's really good because, not, not just from my perspective, like, wow, that's, that's a really good plan. This is a plan, this is a battle strategy that has actually been used throughout history because it's recorded here in the scriptures. Think like William Wallace, like Alexander the Great, uh, Homer references it in the Odyssey the, the, in the Trojan War. Like, this is, this is a famous battle plan. It's genius. It's like tactical genius. And it's genius because it works. So Israel went from getting their tails handed to them to now being able to not just win. It's not like it was even like, like, oh, I didn't know where that was going to go for a second. There was never a point where AI was on top of this thing. They were done for from the beginning. They never had any hope. The Lord's plan was good, and it was good because it worked, and it worked well. But it's also good because of that that theme of what the Lord is doing in it. He's teaching us a lesson through it. Because what does he use to defeat AI? He uses their overconfidence. This is the lesson that Israel had just learned. This is the lesson that Israel had just got done learning because they went in their overconfidence to try and overtake AI, and they were defeated handily. The Lord was not with them. They did not consult the Lord There was sin in the camp. There was so many things going on there. There was no reason for them to do that. It was just their pure confidence in their own ability to do this. They just thought, man, look what we did. Like, we just just did this Jericho thing. Let's just go do that thing. They fundamentally misunderstood what it was that was giving them victory. It was not their ability. It was not their numbers. It was not their tactics. It was not Joshua. It was the Lord. And the same thing happens to Ai here. We see this here. Ai, in their overconfidence, they don't believe believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is with these people anymore. They're like, we were scared for nothing. We're just going to go out and we're just going to take these guys. It's going to be over. In their overconfidence, they pursue them and they're fooled. And the Lord overthrows them. And I think it's that overconfidence is is what causes us problems. You see, the Lord has... A plan. The Lord has a plan in place. We, we've seen that when he, he very clearly directs Joshua what to do. He has something in mind. He cares about the details. But our problem is that we don't believe that and then we don't act on that. The Lord has a plan. It's a good plan. And it's a plan that not only accomplishes its earthly means, but it accomplishes its spiritual means. So through this plan, he shows, he shows Joshua and Israel what he's all about. That he's not about you just going and getting the next thing because it's there. You don't want to shift your eyes from the Lord to the next task. But keep your eyes on the Lord and he will deliver that task to you. Whatever that is. That could be something spiritual, a spiritual goal. It could be, um, it could be a, a better position at work. It could be to have kids that are obedient. Any of these things. We get this task and we put the, we put the cart in front of the horse, and we forget who is the one that gives the victory. It's the Lord. Sammy and I were talking last night, just talking through this text a little bit, and we were just discussing some of those things, the, the things that, that, we, uh, that we want in life, right? The things that we, like, you know, I want, like Sammy wants a husband who leads the family well, you know? She wants me to be the leader. And I want Sammy to respect my leadership, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure some of you, like, you know, I want, I want a godly husband. I want a godly wife. I want children who obey. I want a ministry at work. I want to be able to see people come to faith. Like, I, I, want, to, uh, I want to this. I want to that. Good things, right? But what we do is we, we shift our eyes, and we get, we get, we get confused as to, as to what brings that victory. And it's not anything that we can do or accomplish. Even if you can see the path clearly laid ahead of you. It doesn't always mean that that's for you. We have to be prepared to submit ourselves to the authority of the Lord. You say, well, if, Michael, if, if the Lord has a plan, how do I know what it is? Great question. How do we know the will of the Lord? Well, there's a few things. I've had the opportunity over the past few months to sit with many of you and, and, um, and just talk about the gospel with you, just talk about difficult things that are going on in your lives. I love, I love counseling people. I love sitting with you. I love rehearsing the gospel with you. I love helping you and you helping me believe the gospel more deeply. I love that. One of the things that I always try and establish early on in a conversation with someone who's struggling, a Christian who is struggling, is when are you spending time with the Lord and where are you spending time with God's people? I think those two things alone always help me understand exactly where a person is in their walk with the Lord because we always say, well, I don't know what the Lord wants or I'm just, I'm feeling frustrated. I want this thing, but I just can't seem to get to it. Well, the question is, are you connected with the Lord? Are you plugged in? Are you spending daily time with the Lord? Are you spending daily personal time with him? And on top of that, are you spending personal fellowship time with his saints? Are you gathering in the collected wisdom of all of God's people and letting them pour into your life? Are you doing that? Are you submitting yourself to the authority of God and his word, and to the authority of his church and what he's doing through the Holy Spirit. Because if you're not doing those things, well it's no wonder you're frustrated. It's no wonder you're not having a good time in life, because the thing that you were meant to do, which is walk closer with the Lord, is the thing you're not doing. It's not rocket science. But it is difficult. It's hard. Because we get tricked. We get duped into believing that we somehow are the masters of our own fate. The Lord has a superior plan. And sometimes it just looks like work. Like long, steady, long suffering under the grace of God and the mercy of his people and his church and the counsel of wise believers in your life. And it just looks like patience and submitting yourself to his wisdom and his authority and his timing. And when we don't do those things, yeah, we get frustrated. But that's the point. That's why the Lord does it. We see as we continue to read that Joshua, after this victory, they have a time and it's it's almost out of place in this text so so I'm, I'm talking about 30 through 35 it, it seems it seems almost like it doesn't belong here and and there were some commentaries that I read that agreed they were like we're not really sure where this belongs like maybe they inserted this i think this is perfect you see after this victory at ai Joshua and Israel they have a response to seeing god move and it's the opposite of what they did when they first tried to take ai It's polar opposite. Let's read this together. Starting in verse 30. At the time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the laws of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he, Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with all the elders and the officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them on Mount Gerizim and half of them on Mount Ebal, and just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing, the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Israel's response to this victory at Ai is... Not to go to the next thing, not to be looking at the horizon, not to be finding the the next task, not to be finding the the next uh, milestone in life, but it's to worship. It's to recognize who it is that doles out the victories and allows the defeats. They gather together, as Moses had commanded, in a specific spot, and they, they give sacrifice and they exalt his word. Man, what a response that would be. Do we do that? When we, when we meet that milestone in life, that with the thing we, that we think we've been working for, maybe you have, maybe you've put in some really long, hard hours on something, and we get it, is the response worship? Or is it on to the next thing? Or is it, look what I did? Maybe it's a little bit of both. You have to search your soul and find that. But I think this is the response that the Lord is looking for. He wants us to recognize that He's the one that hands out the victories. He's the one that that has the battle plan. He's the one that delivers all things unto you. That it's nothing that you have done, whether you've done the work or not, any good gift comes from God. That's clear in the scriptures. There's nothing that you have that is good that did not come from Him. And we need to recognize that in our daily life. I need to recognize that in my daily life. Now there's some really good imagery here, and this is the last thing I want to talk about. So we talked about how the the lord has uh he's he's ready to restore that he has a plan that his plan is superior that his plan is written in stone so now i want to talk about how his plan was paid for because there's something bigger at work here there's some imagery here that hints at something bigger so you'll notice that let me just describe the scene for you so after this victory the people take a little bit of a pilgrimage and they go to a place called shechem which is which is not new in the scriptures They go to a very historic place in the promised land. It's where the covenant was made with Abraham. It's where the Lord met with Jacob. It's where he commanded Moses that when when the people finally made it to Israel, that they were to do this exact ceremony. This, This is a culmination event right here in a very specific spot where the Lord has met with the fathers of the faith right here. So we don't want to miss this. And in this spot, this is what they're commanded to do. God has them... Line up, And so there's... Uh, I looked at a topographical map, and there's, these, there's just, a, just a small valley with these two kind of like medium-sized hills. But one is called Mount Ebal, and one is Mount Gerizim. And they put the Ark of the Covenant and the Levitical priests in the middle. And on Mount Ebal is where they, they made the peace offerings and the sacrifices. Now, Ebal, the Hebrew word, means roughly uh, curses. Like it's a mount of cursing, right? So it would make sense that they would make, they would make the sacrifices on that mountain, right? Because we're cursing this animal, we're cursing this sacrifice, so that our sins will be removed. All right, so that's Mount Ebal, and then on this other side, Mount Gerizim, which Gerizim means to cut, which is like to cut a covenant. So cutting a covenant, like in like when Abraham um, and when God makes His covenant with Abraham, and they and they split the animals in two, and then the two, the Lord and, and Abraham pass through them in His vision, and it's saying basically, may may I be split in two like these animals if I don't keep my end of the covenant. So they're cutting a covenant. So that this mountain of promises. This mountain of covenant promises and a mountain of cursing. And the people split up. And you see in the text here, and it says it in Deuteronomy 27 where this comes from. But it says in verse 34, And afterward he, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. So the people split up and it's representative. This imagery is representative of what the law is to the people. This law and this word and this truth that the people are exalting. It has two sides to it. It's not just blessings. It's also curses. So what's the the blessing? The blessing is that the Lord is on your side, that he loves you, he cares for you, he's gonna prosper you, he's gonna give you the land, he's gonna make sure you're safe, he's gonna give you everything that you need. But on the other side, if you don't obey, he's going to curse you. He's gonna have people come and invade, take your stuff, you're gonna die, you're gonna get sick, you're gonna be able to grow no crops, it's going to be way worse than if you just not even we not even entered into this covenant. So those are the two sides of the covenant that are being represented here, one on Mount Ebal, one on Mount Gerizim. And it's good. We we like that we like the blessings, right? We like to think about the blessings of the Lord. But the Lord clearly here wants to point us towards something else. That this is a this is a conditional covenant that he has with Israel. Do you know what I mean by conditional covenant? It is a covenant that is valid as long as, there are condition, as long as the conditions are upheld. Now, I don't know about you, but the Lord always keeps his end of the deal. So I'm worried about Israel's end of the deal. And the Lord knows this, though. Are they going to be able to keep this law perfectly? Are they going to be able to avoid all cursing? No chance. They will be cursed. They will fall under the condemnation of the law because... They just can't obey. They need new hearts. They cannot obey. Look back with me. Verse 24. We're almost done. It says, When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were very last, where the very, excuse me, in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen to the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. So all the people have perished, 12,000 of them, it says in verse 25. In 26 it says, But Joshua did not draw back his hand with the stretched-out javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city um, Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord, as he commanded Joshua. And here it is. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded that they took his body down from the tree and threw it under the entrance of the gate to the city and raised it over a great heap of stones, which stands to this day. Does that sound familiar? A king who dies is hung on a tree and is buried under stone. I don't think that imagery can be ignored this morning. What we have here is a king who died with his people. A pagan king, disobedient to the Lord, who died along with his people. And in sort of a special way, he kind of bore the sins of his people, but they all died together. But I think we know a different king in Jesus. That is not the story of King Jesus. That is not the conditional covenant of King Jesus. Because he knows the curse that is coming. And unlike this King Ai who dies with his people, King Jesus dies for his people. He knows that the curse of the law is coming and has come and will stand forever unless he himself takes that curse for us. One who is worthy. Jesus is the one who breaks the conditions of the conditional covenant by fulfilling them in his body. And unlike the king of Ai, he does, not stand, he does not remain under that heap of stone, defeated, but he rises. This picture of Christ, rather the opposite of Christ, is the same way that, that Joshua is an insufficient vision of who Jesus is. Joshua can't ultimately lead these people to victory. Even if they defeat every enemy handily, there's one enemy who remains that they cannot defeat with sword and with hands the enemy of death. But Jesus, Jesus surpasses all of that. He is the one who stands under the curse of the law for his people, and he takes it. He takes all of it, and he gives us hope so that the conditions of the law are erased, so that we no longer have to stand before the truth of God and hear the blessing with the cursing. It's only blessing. And that's what makes God's battle plan, as we see here, worth submitting to. God is good if you think for some reason that God does not care about the details of your life that he does not care about the minute things and explain the cross to me he cares about everything in your life so much that he is willing to die to see his plan take priority in your life and the question is will we submit to it Will we lay ourselves down in front of him? Will we lay down our lives? Will we give up our freedom for the freedom that we have in Christ? If you've never done that, if you've never committed to laying your life down before Jesus, I challenge you this morning. The Lord is ready to restore. He stands ready to erase the curse of the law from you and give you only blessings that come in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that's for you. And it's through Christ and only through Christ. And that's our good news this morning. That's how we can stand before a passage where 12,000 people and a king die and know that God is good because he would die to erase the penalty of his people's sin if we would just cling to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that though you were hung on a tree for the sins of your people, your body was taken down and it was piled under stone to be forgotten, that you did not remain there, God, that you, Jesus, that you rose and you erased the curse and the penalty of sin from those who would cling to you, God. And I pray that as we navigate life, God, that you would help us to submit to you, to submit to your perfect and wonderful and beautiful leadership, God, that we would submit to the will, of of your word and the truth of your word that we would submit to the authority of your church, the gathered believers whom you have all redeemed, God, you are good. And there is no question about your goodness. There is no question about your character or about your efforts to give us what we need because you went to the ultimate lengths to secure that for us on the cross. God, we just praise you. We praise you for your work on the cross. We praise you for all that you've done, for your goodness. We ask that you bless this time and continue to lift our hearts in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.